0: All right, if you have your Bibles this morning, let's turn to the uh, book of Hosea. Now, today we're going to enter into uh, what is commonly called in your Bible the Minor Prophets. And this is the third section of the Old Testament uh, we've talked about before, the first section being the historical books second section being the wisdom books, and then the last section being the prophets. And uh, the prophets contain the old, or excuse me, the the major and the minor prophets, but um, you'll find that when you come through your Bible, there are 17 books that make up the prophets. We've already studied Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Lamentations, and Daniel. Those are called the major prophets. And then there's 12 that are called the Minor Prophets. And they're called the Minor Prophets not because they're uh, less significant than the uh, other books, but rather because they're smaller books, they're shorter uh, in their content. And uh, to a large degree, the, the Minor Prophets are, are the really some of the hardest books in the Bible. And uh, you would be hard-pressed to go to any Christian bookstore or anywhere to find any commentaries on the minor prophets. They're just not out there. Nobody wants to write about them because, very frankly, once you get past the historical application, which is, you know, generally known, there you just don't know what you're dealing with. And uh, so you won't find a commentary. You'll find commentaries on Daniel. Everybody likes Daniel. You'll find it on Ezekiel and all of that. Everybody likes those. But when it comes to the minor prophets, you will be hard pressed to find any books. It's interesting if you've got a Haley's Bible handbook or, or a, even an Unger's handbook, you know, they go through every book of the Bible in there and give a short thing of it. W- watch sometime in your in your leisure time. Get Grab it and look through it and you'll see when it comes to Jeremiah, they'll have two or three pages and it comes to all these, they'll, but when it comes to the minor prophets, you suddenly get a, maybe a line or a paragraph. They just don't know what they're dealing with with this book outside the historical application. Now, the truth of the matter is, These are the books where the keys of the Bible, the words, really open up. We're going to have some fun with the minor prophets because by the time we're finished with it, you're going to understand it better than 99% of the Bible scholars on the planet Earth. Because what appears to be a hard book are really easy books if you just use the right keys. And uh, it's hard to get into your house when you have the wrong key. I mean, you can stand there all day long with your car key trying to get into your front door, and you aren't going to get in. But if you get the right key, you're in in a moment. Same way with the Bible. It's hard to get into the Bible when you don't have the right keys. You get the right keys, you're in in a heartbeat. That's the minor prophets. And uh, most, as I've said many, many times, most pastors and most Bible teachers, they know a lot about the Bible because they get it from other pastors or what they read. But they really don't know the Bible. You show me somebody who understands the minor prophets and I'll show you someone who understands the Bible because it's such a, they're such key books and the, the key to them and understanding them is the basic simple words. So as we come through them, I'm going to show you how they, they unfold themselves and you will see in a very great way that, um, that they're really incredible books and they're books that you need to know. Historically, we know the minor prophets all deal with the time of Israel's exile. We studied it earlier that the exile comes in three phases. During a 70-year captivity, which is the exile, we have books that are written before that period, which are called pre-exile, we have books that are written after that 70 years, which are called post-exilic books, or post-exile. And we've talked about that. We also know that the prophets are written either to the ten northern tribes, which are collectively called Israel, or the two southern tribes, which are collectively called Judah. And the historical application is the easy part. I mean, now, everybody can write on the historical significance of the minor prophets because it's history, and it's, it's readily known. But when you get into the doctrinal application of the minor prophets, that's where, that's where you go through the ice. That's where they, they can't get to because they reject the Word of God. The Word of God has the keys, therefore you can't get in. And doctrinally, these books all deal with the great undeveloped and unknown truths or on future events, like the second coming of Christ, the tribulation period, the Antichrist, the millennium, and uh, dealing with the Jew and the Gentile during that period of time. They fit right into Daniel in the book of Revelation, but nobody sees that because they're written in a more hidden way because you're dependent on the key words in the Bible. The words that I put on the back of your million-dollar bookmark there. You know, they're they're the key words that open up these books, and I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you as we go through over the weeks and really help you understand it, and you'll be way ahead of most everybody else in the world when it comes to those books in the Bible. Now from an inspirational standpoint, we're again dealing with the great parallels. The great parallels that parallel the nation of Israel from the body of Christ. Their mission, their relationship with God, their sin, and their rejection of the Word of God all parallel each other as you look at historically the nation of Israel, why they got in the mess they got in, how they got in it, and uh, then you look at the church and we've talked about it week after week. One of the things that we have really done is focused on those parallels so you wouldn't miss it because they're so key to our current events that we have today. Now the minor prophets like the major prophets all carry the same message. They're very despondent, they're very gloomy, there's no uh, have a good day in Jesus, There's no, uh, this is the day the Lord hath made, let us be glad and rejoice. You won't find verses like that. On the other hand, you'll find this is the day that God has made, you're going to get it in the back of the head. Uh, It's that kind of of teaching. It's destruction. It's carnage. Just like all the prophets, they focus on the downside of what happens to the nation of Israel, or anybody, when they reject God and go their own way. So you're going to see it over and over again, the same message. God's coming judgment And many times we find, as we've already stated, these prophets are used as object lessons. These prophets are told uh, to do something that maybe is a violation of the law, to illustrate uh, to the people where their ungodliness is and how far down they've come in the rung of ladder of uh, of life, uh, of, of their disobedience to God. And Hosea is no different. We saw Jeremiah, he's called the weeping prophet. We saw Jeremiah, he was the only man in the Bible told not to marry. We saw Ezekiel, he wasn't allowed to cry when his wife died. We saw Isaiah, he walked around three in the years preaching naked. And now we see Hosea. And Hosea is told to break the law. He's told that in chapter 1, verse 1, to take a wife of whoredoms, which is a violation of the Levitical Old Testament law. And in chapter 1, verse 1, he is told to take a wife of whoredoms. And you'll find that uh, there's 12 chapters in Hosea. Hosea uh, means uh, salvation. You'll find that the word Hosea is the Hebrew root word for Jesus or Joshua. So we see all the things begin to come into play here. And as I said, he's told to marry a wife of whoredoms, And uh, his wife's name is Gomer. I know, I felt the same way. I mean, uh, you know what? I mean... uh, Beat my wife Gomer. I hope she didn't say golly. But anyway, you know, it's I don't know what to tell you. His wife's name was Gomer, and uh, his new wife is a harlot, and she represents the unfaithfulness. I'm giving you some background now. She understands the uh, she she represents the unfaithfulness of the nation of Israel. She represents Israel at its worst, and by Hosea being told to marry her, it echoes. The spiritual condition of the nation of Israel, who have committed whoredoms against God, spiritual fornication, spiritual adultery. And through this story in the book of Hosea, God echoes three great messages of the nation of Israel over and over and over again. First is that God abhors the sin of his people. Second is that because of that sin, God's judgment is going to come. And third, God's faithfulness to the nation of Israel in spite of their whoredoms, in spite of their turning their back on God. Hosea, loving unfaithful Gomer, is a picture of God loving unfaithful Israel. And uh, you know, there's many ways to study the nation of Israel in the Bible. And uh, you can study Israel as an animal. There's animals in the Bible that represent the nation of Israel. There are trees in the Bible that represent the nation of Israel. There's fruit in the Bible that represents the nation of Israel. There's people in the Bible that represent the nation of Israel. And God has done it that way to teach you uh, great concepts throughout the Bible by coming at the nation of Israel from from different angles and different standpoints. And you're going to find that the nation of Israel in one way in the Old Testament is likened to God's wife. Now I'm going to give you a great concept here that's going to help you with your Bible. So, you'll want to hear what I say right now. And if you don't get anything else today, and I hope you do, but uh, some people are limited and you're already at 99% max. I understand that. Uh, But but let me just give you a a couple of great concepts. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is called God's wife. God has a wife. Now, I know that that seems like... uh, uh, a contradictive thing, that you didn't know God was married, you know, that you thought God was God, and, but you've got to understand, it's a picture of something. Now the other concept is that Jesus Christ, His Son, has a bride. Those are two aspects by which you study two great concepts in the Bible. One, the nation of Israel as God's wife. Two, the body of Christ as the bride of Christ. It doesn't mean that God came down at some point and had a ceremony and took Israel. What it means is that God's love for Israel is just like the love that a man should have for his wife. And the relationship one there is binding. So the Old Testament picture and the references for it would be Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, Isaiah chapter 54, 1, Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 32, In Isaiah chapter 62, verse 4. Those verses, along with many other verses, will simply tell you that Israel is God's wife. Now, Israel is God's wife, and here's what you've got. Here's the scenario. God called out the nation of Israel through the loins of Abraham. And He called the nation of Israel out from Abraham as a peculiar people, different from everybody else in the world. And in that relationship, God said, I'm going to choose this nation, and you're going to be to me like a wife. And I'm going to be to you a husband. I'm going to treat you good like a husband should. I'm going to do all. I'm going to give you things. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to do the role of a husband for you. And I expect you to do the role of the wife back to me. And, of course, the nation of Israel did not do that. The nation of Israel goes after other gods. The nation of Israel forsakes God. The nation of Israel uh, becomes unfaithful to God in the concept of their religion and their worship to God and goes after all the other gods of the Gentiles. God brings us up through the time period that we are, uh, through the major and the minor prophets, and we've seen how that God then puts them in exile. God takes them out of the land. By Nebuchadnezzar, we saw the three sieges and how it all comes down. God takes them captive under the Gentile nations. At that point, the Bible says, the Bible says in the book of Isaiah, chapter 50, verse 1, that God gives Israel a bill of divorcement. He divorces her under the Old Testament Deuteronomy law of putting her away for her unfaithfulness. But God has not... And this is where Gentiles, when you don't follow the Bible and you don't see the Bible, then you lose track of it and you get all screwed up. When God put her away, God did not put her away forever. God is going to be... And that's where God's faithfulness comes in to an unfaithful nation. She was unfaithful. God judged her for her unfaithfulness. But God then is going to restore her. And God always... Sets down a great principle for you and for me. And that is simply this. Always do what's right when somebody else doesn't. Not doing right, does, somebody not doing right to you doesn't give you a right not to do what's right. Always do what the Bible says and you won't go far wrong. God sets the example. Wow! But while God puts her away, we have what we call the church age. And while Israel is separated from God, and God has put her away, we saw the story, God has hid His face from the name. We looked at all that stuff when we come through. We're pulling a lot of material together we've already taught you that you ought to be following along with. When God put her away, He then turns attention to His Son. And He says, I want to get a bride for my son. Because we are going to go out into eternity... And I, as God, want to have somebody that is faithful to me, Israel. And my son, I want him to have a a person who is faithful to him, the church. So the nation of Israel in the Old Testament becomes God's wife. The body of Christ, you and me, in the New Testament becomes Christ's bride. Those two concepts divide out the Old Testament and the New Testament And they divide out the two concepts of the whole Bible, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is with the nation of Israel as God's wife. The kingdom of God is with the church, the bride of Christ. And you find those two concepts. Right now, God is calling out a bride for His Son. That bride is the church. There's coming a day. The rapture of the church is going to take place. The bride goes to be with the bridegroom. What does God do then? Ah, God does then... He begins to restore his wife to him. And through the tribulation period, that seven years where the Antichrist, under the guidelines of the devil, literally run this world, he brings Israel, his wife, back to her, back to him. And at the second coming of Christ, he restores that wife, Israel, as a nation. And they go into the millennium as restored and on through eternity. God has his people, Israel, likened to his wife, Christ has His bride, the church, and the two have their relationships based on the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. It's an incredible, incredible concept. And that's why it's so important for you to understand that. Now that's what you've got in the main message of the book of Hosea. And the book of Hosea breaks down very simply. And uh, now that I've kind of given an introduction, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll look at... We'll look at the breakdown. Father, we thank You and praise You for all that You do for us, and we love You today. We ask You to help us to put together this great book, to learn from it. Help us to go out of here today with more insight, more understanding in how the Bible goes together, how it fits into our own lives, and all the things that we do. And we pray, Father, You'll bless us now in all that You do. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, the breakdown is, is, is fairly simple. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3 focuses on Hosea's love for his wayward wife, Gomer. Chapter 4 through chapter 12 focuses on God's love for wayward Israel. And you'll find the parallels between the two. And through it all, you'll find one great theme. And we're going to end on this when we get to the end of the book, and that is God's faithfulness to Israel. And you can translate into us. A practical application to God's faithfulness to you and to me. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Alright, now the book of Hosea is, a, is a, uh, a pre-exilic book. And remember now, God's prophets are men, we've talked about this before, the prophets in the Old Testament, whether it's major or minor, they are men who take God's side on biblical issues against His people who are doing the wrong thing. And the book of Hosea is written to the ten northern tribes. Not to the southern tribe, but the ten northern tribes. So in chapter 1, and we'll begin to walk through this here a little bit and, and, and look at some great concepts. In chapter 1, you have Israel and Gomer, and you have the comparison of how he is told to take a wife of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredoms against God. And this becomes the object lesson. And this is what really the whole book of Hosea is about. The whole book of Hosea is an object lesson. But within that object lesson are some incredible truths. She bears him three children whose names all picture the uh, desperate situation of the nation of Israel. The first boy, boy she has is a guy by the name of Jezreel. Jezreel means God scatters. The second child that she has is a girl, Lo Ramoah, means not pitied. And the third child that she has is another boy, Lo Emma. And that means, not my people. Now what you see by chapter 1 here is that not only is Israel in a bad state, but the fruit that Israel's is uh, putting forth is the wrong fruit. And you see that that the God names these children, who are the fruit of Gomer's womb, uh, as things that are in a negative context with God. Why? Because Israel... It is not only doing wrong itself as a nation, that, but the fruit that Israel is producing as God's people is also wrong. And you see that great concept in chapter, chapter 1. In chapter 2 and chapter 3, you find God's stormy divorce and the his restitution uh, with his wife. And uh, it's a thing where in chapter 2, and, and this is I need to show you this because this is a great illustration here. A couple of weeks ago on Thursday night Bible study, I think it was Pam that asked me the question here. Didn't you ask me the question about paragraph marks in the Bible in the, Laoke? you asked me there in the book of Acts, why the, the, in the book of Acts chapter 20 or one of those places there, was the last place you found paragraph marks in the Bible. And I went through and I explained why paragraph marks are very important. I showed you how the paragraph marks are one of the key ways that you figure out the Bible. And then I told you why it wasn't after that and, uh, now, now, don't you wish you'd have been there on Thursday night when I laid that out? Okay, enough of that. But anyway, so, and they came through that thing. Now, here's a chapter that exactly means it. Now, look at this, chapter 2. Now, here's what I mean. This is a great example. In fact, once I saw this, I went back to my notes and I put this in as an example in case anybody else ever asked the question. Look at chapter 2. See, there's a paragraph mark in verse 6. Look at chapter, look at verse 14. Paragraph mark there in verse 14. Two paragraph marks in this chapter, which makes three sections. And I showed you how the paragraph marks many times will change dispensations. And that's exactly what you've got. Because in chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 you have a picture of of her sin and the thing that she did historically. And then there's a paragraph mark in 6. In 6 it changes. And from 6 to 13 you deal with her judgment. That would be the tribulation period. And in chapter 14 there's an air paragraph mark and the context changes again and now you got the millennium and a restoration. You see that? Your whole Bible is what in one chapter and laid out historically, laid out the tribulation period, and laid out through the millennium by two paragraph marks. In 1 through 5, it's Israel's history and her sin and her being cast away by God. In chapter 6, it's the tribulation period and her paying for her sin by the judgment of the tribulation. And in chapter 14 on, it's God restoring her putting her into the millennium, and putting everything back the way it was. That's the importance of those paragraph marks, and that's what you've got in chapter 2 and in chapter 3. It deals with God dealing with the nation of Israel historically. It deals with God, which is including our time period now. In other words, the first five verses there bring you from the beginning of Genesis where he deals with Abraham right up to the time where we're at and shows you why Israel got in the mess she got in. Then it brings you into the tribulation period in chapter in verses 6 through 13 and shows you how God's going to judge them. Then, verse 14 to the end of the chapter, verse 23, it shows you how God is going to restore them. You've got the whole concept of God, what He's going to do with Israel from Genesis to the end of the Bible. In one chapter, and it's figured out by two paragraph marks being put in the same place. And 99.999999999% of the Bible scholars, Bible teacher, radio guys, pastors in this world today will tell you those paragraph marks mean nothing. Well, let me say, those guys mean nothing, and the paragraph marks mean something. Because God put them in there because it's his book. Imagine God writing a book and let somebody else punctuate it. Give me a break. Anybody here ever did a thesis paper and didn't put any punctuation marks and then take it to somebody else and said, Would you put the punctuation marks in for me? Oh, you have? Okay. I have two, but I wasn't going to confess to it. I did give him 20 bucks, to have him read a term paper for me. <laughs> but that's what you're dealing with. Now we come to chapter four. And chapter four is the key to the book of Hosea. And chapter four is uh, a key chapter, really, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, concerning the main problem we have, which are the parallels between the two. And I want to read chapter 4 for you, verses 1 through 6. And uh, before I do that, I, I want to give you, a, I'm going to add a, a new scripture. There are, there are verses that I, I consider salient verses. You know what salient means? I don't either, but it's a great word. It, it, means, it means you got to have them. It means very important. It means It means don't forget this. There are verses in the Bible that I call salient. Salient in the sense of you can't get along in life without them. Salient in the sense of it's one verse that will explain something huge. And there are verses in the Bible that are great verses, but they just go along with the story. Then there are verses in the Bible that are really good verses, and they'll show you some great things. And then there's what I call the salient verses. I got about 400 of them marked in my Bible i got them cataloged in the back of my Bible. They're what I call the salient verses. They're the absolute verses. They're the verses that you read one verse and it just explodes the whole Bible into a picture in front of you and tells you why you are the way you, why, why things are the way they are, how you deal with it, and how you understand it. They are, they're, they're called salient verses. Now, they're not, you don't go anywhere to find That's my word for them. They are salient is a word that, that I found one time, which said that's what those are. So, and I'm going to give you one. I'm going to add another one to your repertoire. And I don't know what repertoire means. I hope it isn't a dirty word, but it it sounds good too. Chapter 8. I'm going to give you one now. you want this. Because you're going to use this through the book, and you're going to use this through the rest of your life. Now, every time, every time somebody makes fun of you, I know you know I know a lot of you you know that we spend time in the Word of God together, and God is putting you in in great circumstances, and He's putting you in circumstances where you're talking to people who are supposedly Christians, and they probably are. But they really are idiots when it comes to the Bible, aren't they, Marion? Aren't they, Steve? And they think they know more than you know about it, and they resent the fact that. And they look at you like you're an idiot because you believe some things about the Bible that they've never heard. And I've had that problem all my life. And it was always amazing to me that, you know, what, a hundred years ago, the average guy on the street corner knew about the Bible. Today, those same great truths the body of Christ looks at and thinks that anybody that believes it's an idiot. And, you know, I look at them like the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party lost the election simply because they're idiots. They're not in touch in any way, shape, or form with what's really going on in America. They're ideologues. They got their own mind. They are over here and they're thinking, why wouldn't you want to be like us? Why wouldn't you want what we have? And then when you don't agree with them, you're an idiot. Well, you don't have what we have. You're an idiot. And that's their only example. There's something wrong with you. There couldn't be anything wrong with us. And after they lost the election, I heard everybody saying, the Democrats were saying, well, we've got to go in and we've got to refocus on some things. And we've got to ask ourselves, you know, why we lost and what what, what do we got to do? How do we get back? And when I heard that, I thought to myself, you know what? There's a great lesson in life and it is simply this. Idiots never learn. They never learn. When you're a bonafide idiot and you're certified, you never learn anything. And the Bible teaches that. The Bible teaches that. And I, when I heard that, I thought to myself, I promise you, as, as I hear that, and I promise you, as we're meeting here today, somewhere in Washington, somewhere on Capitol Hill, somewhere out there where the Democrats all gather to, to plan their strategy, they're sitting around, and instead of saying, what, is, what happened? What is wrong with us? What, how did we fail? What they are saying through their arrogance is, what is wrong with these people in America? It isn't what's wrong with them, it's what's wrong with you. And when a man gets arrogant to the point that he rejects the authority of the Word of God, the problem is never him, it is always you. It is always you. It couldn't be him. And of course, that's exactly what you got in Christianity. It isn't a matter of fact that what we believe in the Bible, you can follow a solid line right back to Acts chapter 11 where they're first called Christians. It ain't about any of that. Some of the weirdest stuff that people look at you and say, well, that's really off the wall. That's really strange. Well, I think you're a heretic. Well, you're some kind of, we're kind of uh, teaching heresy over there. Well, what kind of church are you anyhow? Are the same things, if you go back in history, you would find the Albigensians and the Huguenots believing back in the 10th and the 12th century. Why? Because they're Bible believers. They believe the Bible. And we get all caught up with that, and I'm going to give you a salient verse here. This is a great verse. And this will help you understand, and from now on, I've ruined your day, because from now on, when somebody bombs you with something, this verse is going to come to your mind, and this is the answer. This thing will answer a lot of questions that you have when you come over to me and you say, Bob, what is wrong with people? Here's what's wrong. And it's found in the parallel between the nation of Israel and the body of Christ. They had rejected God and they had, see how I keep not giving you the verse because you keep moving closer on the edge of your seat. And I'm just waiting for somebody to fall off and then I'll give it to you. When you look at this thing, you you see the parallel. They They had forgot God. They had forsaken His Word. They had a religion just like most Baptist churches where they went to church every Sunday, they sang songs, they did all of this, and they had everything going, but they didn't have God, they didn't have the Bible, and they had no understanding. And I'm going to show you that in just a second. And so when they're faced with the truth of God's Word, which is salient, which is definable down through history, Here's what they do. 8.12. God says this. I have written to him, Israel, the great things of my law, the word of God, but they were counted as a strange thing. You see? When you reject God and the word of God, and you go your own way and you still play church, and you want to be Christianity and you want to be nicey-nicey, and you think you're really spiritual without a Bible, without a relationship with God, and without, a, without the doctrinal teaching of the Bible, then in time, because of your arrogance, and because of your, there's nothing wrong with me, what's wrong with you folks, you get to the point where the great things that God wrote in His Bible become strange things to you, and you just can't see them. You can't figure it out. Because God wrote some tremendous, incredible things in that Bible. But the key of getting them is your attitude of heart of believing the book that he wrote them in. And when you don't, those great things to us become strange, weird things to them. And that's just the way it works. And I say give you that verse starting the key chapter because here is the problem. And the great parallels here is between Israel and the church because this is our problem now follow with me here and he says hear the word of the Lord ye children of Israel for the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land now first thing I want to point out to you is that God has a controversy and the controversy is had is not with unsaved people The controversy that he's going through here is not with the Amalekites or the Hittites or the Philistines or or the uh, Moabites. The controversy that he has is with the inhabitants of the land. That is the land that God has given to Abraham, and the inhabitants that he's talking about here are his own people. This is not a passage that's written to the lost. In the Old Testament, historically, you make it Israel because it is. In the New Testament, uh, inspirationally, you make it the church because that's the parallel. God has a controversy with a church today, just like he had a controversy with the nation of Israel back in the book of Hosea. What's it over? What's it over? What's the controversy over? Here it comes. Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel. For the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, because one, there is no truth. Two, nor mercy. Three, knowledge of God in the land. Notice the progression. You can't help but see that. The first thing Israel lost is the first thing the church lost. Truth. Truth. When you lose truth, You lose everything because now you have no measuring yardstick wherefore to judge anything by. Everything becomes secular, humanistic, and relative. There's no more absolute truth. There's nothing to judge anything by. Therefore, man is left to his own devices to define what truth is. And boy, we know where that will go. That will go from Dan to Beersheba in a very quick way. It goes downhill quickly. Man left to himself will always destroy even farther because he has rejected truth. The very fact that man rejected truth in the first place shows you that man did not care about what God thought or what was absolute, but wanted the ability to do his own thing. Once you lose truth, then you lose mercy. And that is why nobody wins people to Christ today on their own. That is why today the church has to provide programs. The church has to provide something for you. I remember years ago, somebody said to me, well, when are you going to give me somebody to disciple? And I said, why don't you just want to win somebody to Christ and disciple them? What's wrong with that concept? We got, I mean, I talked to a guy, I talked to a guy last, a couple of weeks ago, and he said, you know what? He said, he, uh, he lives across the a country, and he's struggling with a little church. And he says, you know what, he says, I've got, he says, I've got, I've got, Bobby, a church of 40, 50 people. And he says, we're struggling. And he said, you know what, he says, I don't understand it. He says, I've got, I've got like nine or 10 uh, uh, really families that are really good families in this church. I've got some men that know the Bible, in fact, better than I do. He says, some of them have been to Bible college, some of them have done this. And he said, he said, I don't understand. Bob, what do you think the problem is? And I said, well, let me ask you a question. I said, I don't know because I'm not there. But let me just say this to you. I'm telling you right now, maybe you better look at this. I'm saying, you know what? Everybody in your church, all those guys who are the great guys that want to do, you know, uh, that, uh, that all know the Bible. And it's an easy thing to fall into. Everybody, everybody wants to help you preach. Everybody wants to bear the responsibility of preaching. But nobody probably in your church wants to bear the better responsibility of helping you build the church. I said, ask, ask, look at yourself. Ask those guys when's the last time, Pastor, you really personally won somebody to Christ? When's the last time you went out, won somebody to Christ, discipled them, and, and, and did? And that's the problem today. We don't understand the personal accountability of winning men and women to Christ. We expect to bring them to church, I'll win them. We expect to bring them here or get a program that the church will give you somebody to win when the product line is, and that's fine, and the church needs to do that. But in the danger of that is simply this. The danger of that is simply this. You can never come to the point in your life where you cease to be a soul winner. You can't ever come to the place in your life, and I don't care. People I've heard are every excuse. I had a guy one time say to me, well, you don't understand. Where I work, you can't witness. Well, you know what? Winning people to Christ has nothing to do with working someplace where you can't witness. Winning people to Christ has something to do with your own personal relationship with the Holy Spirit of God. If that's right, and you got all the buttons flying, and everything's moving, God's Spirit will lead you to people, and you will win them to Christ. That's the way, and what happens is, when you lose truth, you lose mercy. We're living in a day where uh, unborn babies being aborted is, is unprecedented. Now, we as Christians, we want to have rallies. We want to have, have pro choice or pro life and, and all these things. And we want to get together. We want to pass legislation. We want to stop abortion. We want to stop unborn babies from being aborted before they hit full term and become born. We want to do the right thing. We want to do the moral thing. And we want to blame the wickedness of the unsafe world for all those problems. I got a terrible news flash for you. Abortion is on the rise not because of wickedness. Abortion is on the rise simply because anytime time truth is gone, mercy is gone, and when there is no mercies, you'll abort every baby in the world that gets aborted today. Nobody cares. You know why nobody cares? There's no standard of life anymore. And that's not the unsaved people's fault. That's God's people's fault. That's God's people's fault guy said to me one time, what are we going to do to stop out pornography? And I said, let's get Christians to quit buying it. i probably cut it in half right there. When there's no truth, there's no mercy. And you can play big time preacher all you want whenever you're pastoring a church. You can walk around and say, "Oh, I know the Bible and I know this all you want. The bottom line is, the real proof of it is not how well you know the Bible, it's not how well you preach the Bible, not how well you teach the Bible, it's what it's doing through you in the lives of others on your own. That's the key. That's the key. And we saw in the nation of Israel. They lost the truth. And when they lost the truth, they lost mercy. And when you lose mercy, you lose the knowledge of God in the land. And that notice the land, the land, the land. You got to see it, folks. The church is given the responsibility of truth and mercy, the Bible and soul winning, the Bible and God's forgiveness. When the church forsakes those two, the knowledge of God in the land goes. You don't like prayer, not taking out prayer in schools? You don't like the fact that they won't let the Ten Commandments. You don't like the fact that the Hillary Clintons of this world and the liberals of this world are trying to run this thing, and you, you you don't like it, you don't like it, you don't like it, you don't like it. You know whose fault it is? When the church dumps the truth, the church dumps the mercy, the land goes to hell in a handbag. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. The whole system breaks down. The whole system breaks down. Somebody said, wow, we conservatives. Boy, I'll tell you what. We conservatives, we really showed them in the election. It was because of Christians that, that uh, we won the election. Well, Bob, what are you going to think now that the Christians have made a stand? All oh, I think this now is we've got 55, 55 million Christians that are all working with the devil's Bible. What's that tell you? That help you out? Fifty-five million Christians went out and voted. We beat them by three million or something like that. And somebody says, boy, Christians really stood up. Now what are we going to do? You ain't going to do nothing with the wrong Bible. Boy, you better, get your, you better get the bolts turned in tighter on your head. You're not thinking right. When your church loses truth, and God's people lose the truth, and John chapter 17, verse 17 defines it for you, is thy, my thy word is truth. That you don't win people to Christ, you don't explain the forgiveness of God, you get self centered, you get bloated up in your own knowledge and your own wisdom and how great you preach, and you lose the personal accountability of going out on that world and winning somebody to Christ and bringing them to church. And when that breaks down, and it has, the knowledge of God in the land goes like a mist after the morning fog. And I'm telling you. Now what replaced it? Let's go on. What replaced truth, mercy, and the knowledge of God in the land? In Israel. Here's what replaced it. Swearing, lying, killing, stealing, committing adultery. They break out and blood touches blood. Now that's what replaced it. One time a number of years ago, I was was homesick. And I decided that day, since I was sick anyhow, I might as well use that time to learn something instructive. So I sat down for a period of about 18 hours. And I channel-surfed between the channels with two large legal pad notebooks on my lap. And between trips to the restroom, I recorded that on major network channels, in a period of 15 or 18 hours, I recorded 247 cuss words, 22 acts of adultery, 43 murders, 8 rapes, 60 assorted dope pushers, and 38 drunks. And then I read the statistic that the kid, by the time he's 14 years old, if he's a normal kid, he's witnessed 30,000 murders on television. Now, when I grew up, some of us grew up, I was born in 1950, about just five years after World War II was over. It was a different country then. There were still some young kids growing up that played cowboys and Indians, but most of us kids didn't. We played army. You could go to the surplus store and there was army stuff hanging everywhere for next to nothing. My biggest days of my life at the end of the week was Friday night, Saturday morning. Dad take me down to the Army surplus store and me just going in there and looking at all the helmets and canteens and belt buckles and, and cartridge pouches. and I'd get that stuff and we'd get all the kids in the neighborhood. And Of course, I was always the commander. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, even at that point age in life, people didn't recognize that this guy is a general. Oh no, it's daddy we better look out. And I remember. And and it was a good thing back then. We had just defeated Nazism in, in the Japanese Empire. The world was free from oppression. And it was a it was a natural thing, young men growing up, that the, the fun things they engaged in reflected the, and I know this may sound stupid to somebody. Maybe you can't identify with it. But at that young age, young men growing up were identified. And everybody played Army. I mean, when, at Christmas time, about two months before Christmas, Mattel machine guns, combat infantry helmets, I mean, everything was. And you guys that grew up there, you know that's true. Try to find that stuff now. Well, now they, they, they put little action figures, you know, of World War II soldiers. And somebody wants to sue somebody because of racial discrimination. You know, it's terrible. And when I grew up, you played Army. We found an empty field. We dug foxholes. And when the enemy came, they were the bad guys, and we always won. Now, I know that sounds stupid, but I'll tell you what. You take young men and grow them up in an environment where they're reflective on a price that was paid, and even though they're playing, they identify with what was. And as you grow older, they make the reflections back and forth. Now, I know some of you don't think anything to that. You think that's weird and off the wall. That's fine. I don't want you in my foxhole. We'll let you be a runner. And then I'll say, He's running away, shoot him and then you're dead and you're out and you get to go home. No, that was in the nineteen fact that was just a couple of weeks ago as well I'm thinking about it. <laughs> that was back in the sixties. Sixty five. And then in nineteen Well, it wasn't the sixties, it must have been the late fifties or I don't know, but in '68 I got to do it for real. And I, you know, and 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 then I, I, the other day I was <clears throat> reading some things and looking some things. I always try to just read everything I can get my hands on. And I made the I, I read come across this thing that now today, where when I was in 1960 or so, I was playing army, and we were playing army and defeating the bad guys because of what we understood democracy and what our fathers had just done, and World War II was still fresh in everybody's mind. Today. The country has swung way the other way. Wars are bad. Soldiers are bad. Though we respect our soldiers, we really don't want to. But we're not going to have another Vietnam concept. We really don't want a war. Or when we do have a war, we want a war where you just shake hands, you go out, you spit on each other for a while, and then you leave and go home nobody gets killed. We've lost that. Today now, we've replaced it, and we wonder what's wrong with our kid. Today, a 14-year-old kid can go down to Blockbuster Video or some place that sells those virtual reality stuff He can get a CD, he can can do live car police chases, he can do karate things where he kills people, and then I read last week there's even one where any kid can go in and he can put in a player, and he can pick up a street whore on a street corner, have sex with her, and then beat her to death with a baseball bat at 14 years of age. And that has replaced my foxhole in 1960. What happened? And we wonder what's wrong with our kids. I'll tell you what's happened. Back in my day, there was still truth. Back in my day, there were men who believed the truth that were preaching it, and people were winning people to Christ. And in the land, there was a knowledge of God. It doesn't mean everybody was a Christian. It doesn't mean everybody believed in God. But there was a respect and an awe and a holiness of God, even though you didn't believe it. Today, we don't have it. Why? truth is gone, mercy is gone, and the knowledge of God is gone. So now, instead of putting him in a little army suit, putting him out there letting him play, give him a video have sex, beat the woman to death with a baseball bat, have police car chases, cut people's heads off with swords, kick them with karate moves that knock their heads off and bust their limbs, and that's what we have as fun. And then we wonder why what's wrong with it. What's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it. We've come to the place where we have so got ourselves so caught up in all this. As Christians, this thing came home to me a couple of weeks ago. I was watching television on the History Channel and a guy came on and talked about a the Iraq war in a new CD he had put together that really laid the war out because Americans needed to see it because Americans were were all caught up in the liberals and, and the name of this thing was called Buried in the Sand. So I got it. I said, you know what, I, want, I, I get things like that all the time. And what this was, and some of you have seen it. Woody found it on the internet for me he ordered it and he him and Steve looked at it first they only got halfway through it first time I saw it I only got halfway through it what it is it's a it's a absolute actual video and what this guy did now he he everybody was on America and Bush and all that because of the the grub stuff, you know, that took place in the prison camp, and making the guys naked and all those things. And I'm not justifying all that. All I'm saying, I like them letting the dog bite them. That was a good idea. But, I, I'm, but I'm not against all of that. I'm not for all that stuff. But they were, the press made such an absolute unbelievable, like this was Dachau concentration camp. And so what this guy wanted to do is wanted to show the difference between what we did, which was wrong. He didn't justify it either. And what Saddam was doing in the same prison camp. And he had the actual footage of what Saddam done to people. I'm not talking about with their faces blotted out. I'm talking about living color, some of the most unbelievable atrocities that are unbelievable that we couldn't meet and him. And some of couldn't get through it one time. All the people who they cut their heads off, you are three feet away, and you watch that guy saw through that guy's neck while he's calling for his mother. And, it's, and you know what? And the, and, and the first time I saw it, I got to tell you this, the first time I saw it, instinctively it took a while for it to, it was worse two days later than it was when I saw it. You know why? Because I was so desensitized by watching all that stuff on television when it wasn't real, that for a short moment of time I couldn't separate. Here was a real man with a real family, who after no director said, cut, take, send him home. No, no. He got his throat cut, his head was cut off while he screamed for his mother and they sawed it off one inch at a time and then hung it up in the camera and then stuck it on the back of his back and it took me three days to realize that that was real. Why? Because even as as we try to keep in that book and keep the truth, this old world pounds on us and we get so desensitized and if I can sit there, I'm telling you and I'm making this point, if I can sit there and I can see that actually happen, and it takes me two or three days to come to reality that, Bob, that was real. That wasn't, that wasn't something in a movie that was set up. We have got the fake stuff looking so much like the real stuff. And just like a kid sees 30,000 murders by the time he's 14, what do you see by the time you're 40? And we are so we see it all the time. We play the games all the time. We watch it on TV. We watch people getting cut in half, their heads cut off. We watch Freddy Krueger chase them down that hallway and cut off their legs and cut off their necks. We watch Terminator zip them up and burn them up and stick things through milk cartons in their mouth, you know, big sword. And we watch that stuff, you know, and after a while, when you can't separate this from that, you can't separate, that's fake, that's real. And once the real sets in, you think to yourself, man, whoa, I have got, I've got to get back and refocus. And I'm telling you, that's exactly what happens to God's people. We get caught up in this world, and even though we have our King James Bible, even though we all believe it, even though we all know a lot about the Bible, you know what, we get desensitized to the fact that people are really dying and going to hell and burning for eternity like a torch. You know why? Because the pressure of this world, when it kicks the truth out, it dumps the mercy, rolls right down on top of us. And as Bible believers as we are, and as much as we love God and God's word, and we talk about all the right things, we get desensitized. And that's why we're sitting here, and I'm just going to say it, that's why most of us are sitting here and haven't won a person to Christ in the last year. That's why. You can make all the excuses you want. I don't care. I don't care we get desensitized. And the reason why we get desensitized is because of the fact that we get so caught up in those things that we we, we can't tell truth from real anymore because even though, I mean, if we have the truth and we preach the truth and we still can get caught up in it, What must be a child of God out there that has no truth, gets no preaching, gets no teaching, that has the devil's corrupt Bible, that has no understanding? You know what happens? This is what I said. The great things that God gave him become strange things, even to the act of winning people to Christ, and we become leeches. We become waiting for the preacher, waiting for the church, waiting for some program that'll kick me out there that I'll get somebody to win to Christ. Waiting for somebody to raise their hand in a service so I can win them to Christ. Waiting for somebody in Thursday night Bible that to raise their hand so I can win. Them. Maybe Bob will call on me. Or maybe for somebody to get saved and Bob will say, here, would you disciple this person or would you do that? When the truth of the matter is, we ought to be out there beating the bushes, doing it ourselves, and then bringing them in on top of what God's already doing. You know what happens? We get desensitized. We get, it's the hardest thing you've got to fight. It's the hardest thing i got to fight. I'm not just saying about it to you, I'm talking about it to me. And I'm telling you, that's what you've got. This chapter 4 is an incredible chapter. It says that God had a controversy. They lost truth, they lost mercy, they lost the knowledge of God. And then they got replaced by swearing and lying and killing and stealing and all the other things. Now I want to show you something here. And I got to move on. I want to show you something here. And this is another, and this is, the Irish people are going to say, Bob, you're nuts. All right? When they say, Bob, you're nuts, I'm just going to give them Hosea 8.12. But look at verse 33. I mean, verse 3, I'm sorry. Verse 2 says, by swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break out and blood touches blood. Verse 3, therefore shall the land mourn. And everyone that dwelleth therein shall languish with the beast of the field and with the fowls of heaven, yea, the fishes of the sea also shall be taken away. We have in our country today some great issues that people are concerned about. Global warming is one. Global warming is that the pools are melting and therefore everything is changing. That's President Bush's fault, everybody says, because of the fact that he didn't pass the bill on global warming to stop it. Therefore, uh, the hurricanes are getting worse because of the global warming. The tornadoes are getting worse, and the floods are getting worse. Pass the buck. Other scientists will say, "Well, you know what? The ozone layer is being deter- is being destroyed, and you know the ozone layer keeps out the bad radiation." And I suspect if Jesus doesn't come in another four, five hundred years, you'll be going to the drugstore buying sunblock with a screen of two thousand plus, because the radiation's going to fry you up. Colonel Sanders will be very pleased, but it's it's going to be Crispy or extra crispy, but you're going to get it. That's just the way it's going. They said for a long time it was because of you women. They blame it on somebody. Hairspray, okay, then cars. Then they say, you know what, well, you know what, you need to quit having these big SUVs and all this stuff. You ever notice people say that are all driving around in big SUVs? The government says, we got to stop these, we got to get more accountable cars, we need to get it. And then when they get in their bulletproof 6,000 ton, bulletproof SSVs and drive off to the next engagement. It's crazy, It's crazy. Now I think there's some credibility to that because I, w- I grew up with three girls and I think there's some credibility to the hairspray killing the ozone layer. <laughs> I mean you never in my house you've never lived until you walk from one room into the and there's three women in the bathroom and they're all spraying and they're all spraying a different spray. I was afraid that the chemicals would unite and the place would go up in a vast explosion. <laughs> And I, many times, I've walked in, and, you know, and this is when the kids were small, you know, and they were spraying, was spraying, and Jamie was spraying, and it was just like, you know, I thought to myself, you guys spray if you guys prayed as much as you sprayed, we'd have a revival at our church, I'll tell you. And it, it, but that's just, so I may be some credibility to that, but then you go on. Crop failure, terrible. Crop failure. Fails, I mean, too much rain, not enough rain, places in the count get too much rain, drought in other places. Hurricanes are worse, floodings are worse, volcanoes ecological balance being upset, whatever that is, animals, bird extinction, man's environmental messes, the endangered species list, oil our natural resources, we don't have enough oil so we got to buy it from over here. Everybody said we need to become more dependent and they said okay we got plenty over here in the environment and say you can't dig here we got to save the gay sperm whales, we got to save the animals we got to save the, We got to save this. we got to save that. We, got, we can't do yet. Well, we need oil. we got to buy it from here. Quit. You need to be more dependent. Quit buying it from them. All right. We got plenty of oil over here. Let's dig down. Didn't we build an Alaskan pipeline that now the squirrels are running through using for condominiums? <laughs> well, there's no oil coming through it. We built it, put it out, and now they're saying, well, we can't dig up here. So what are little squirrels doing? They're dividing them up into subdivisions. I mean, there are little squirrels, little chipmunks, little possums up there, you know. They're living in those things. Got little curtains up now, you know, and little TVs in there kicking back. That thing runs all the way down through Alaska. You drive that thing, a big old pipe like a silver snake coming down through there. And there's those little animals waving at you. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Crazy. Let me tell you something. Verse 33 says, you'll pollute the land. You'll defile the land. The land can't function. You know what the problem is with our environment? It's sin. Don't you know Romans talks about the fact or in rate, that the whole creation groaneth? Can't you read verse 3? It says, when you don't do what's right and you lose those things, the land mourns and the dwelleth therein languishes, the beasts of the field, the fowls of heaven, it all falls down and breaks down. Don't you understand that? Don't you know that over there in Genesis, or in, in, uh, in, uh, in Genesis, he said that if man kills a man, by his blood shall be shed? Don't you know that capital punishment and not killing, and not instant county punishment def- destroys the land? Don't you know that? Or have you gotten so strange from the word of God you've forgotten those things? Don't you ever wonder why that when Abel killed uh, Cain killed Abel and, and he hit him that God said to him a strange thing? He says, your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. What was the blood down there saying? Hey God, I'm over here. That's the principle. When you take a murderer and he's a convicted murderer and you don't kill him. And you forsake, I mean, whether you, whether you think about it or not, the absolute final authority says, Whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. End of discussion. You don't kill him, and Deuteronomy chapter 35 goes through that whole thing, lays out all the different kinds of murder, man slaying, all the stuff, accidental death, murder, all the things, Jesus defined it. And then the Bible says when you don't do it, you pollute the land, you defile the land, and the land can't function. This thing of rejecting truth not only goes to unborn babies, it not only goes back to all the ungodliness that we have allowed in, it goes back to the very ecological problems that this whole world's got because it's all based on an absolute book that is absolute truth. And when you reject it, everybody pays the price. Can't you get that? You lose truth, the great things of God become strange things. And it winds up being no knowledge of God whatsoever. Chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. Now these chapters focused on another great thing you need to see. And that is the concept of the tribe Ephraim. Ephraim is the largest of the ten northern tribes. There's a great truth here. In the book of Revelation, you'll find during the tribulation period that God calls out 12,000 people from each tribe of the nation of Israel making 144,000 Jewish people who preach during the tribulation period. The tribes are listed from which they come from. You do not find the tribe Dan nor the tribe of Ephraim in that list of 144,000. They are left out. They are replaced with the two half-tribes. They're replaced with Joseph and, or not two half-tribes, but Joseph and Levi. They're replaced. They're not found in the book of Revelation. Revelation. The reason that Dan is not found there's numerous places in the Bible but simply say stated uh, Dan uh, never has a good from the start in Genesis chapter 49 Dan goes completely after Baal worship it's the Danites that look at judges that go into Baal worship with a black-robed priest called father Samson was a Danite they curse God in the book of Leviticus uh, and everything about Dan leads to the fact that Dan goes totally and completely into Baal worship and then because of that is left out of the 144,000 Jews preaching during the tribulation period, the latter part of the tribulation period. Ephraim is the other one. And the book of Hosea deals with this in particular. In all of these chapters, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, we'll talk to you about Ephraim. Ephraim has is, uh, is, is, is got problems in 7, 8, in chapter 7, 11. Ephraim has said in 8, 7, that sow the wind is going to reap the whirlwind. Hosea chapter 4, verse 17 says simply that Ephraim has joined himself to idols, leave him alone. And that's why these two tribes do not get in to the 144,000 during the tribulation period, but you find them restored in the millennium in Ezekiel chapter 48, verses 1 through 7. But you need to know that. How many times have I been asked that question? Why they're not in? Why they're too out? That's why. <coughs> and that's something you need to know. Then chapter 10. Chapter 10 deals with the barrenness of the nation of Israel. And a great principle is here. He says chapter ten, verse one, Israel is an empty vine, no fruit. And then in verse one, he says he brings forth fruit but not uh, but to his own glory. Well he says in in one that he is an empty vine, then he says he has fruit on it. Great principle here. The principle is this everybody bears fruit, but there's some fruit that God won't recognize as fruit. And I'm talking about a Christian. You know why Israel, these were God's people? You know why God didn't recognize their fruit and says there's no fruit there when they said, but there is fruit? Because it was fruit that took the glory from God and gave the glory to himself. That's why. Great principle. Great principle. You see, that's another way that you study the nation of Israel. Israel is called a vineyard with particular references at Jerusalem in Isaiah 5, 7 and Isaiah 27, 2, I believe it is. And they're called to bring forth fruit. You see this in Matthew 21, in the parable 33 through 40. And they were given a husbandman. A husbandman is somebody that takes care of their vineyard. That husbandman is the leaders of Israel. And they're to bring forth fruit. But the Bible says in 418 that they bring forth sour grapes. You can connect that back to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 32, where it talks about the wrong vine and the wrong drink and the wrong grapes and everything else. God judges them in the tribulation period, the second coming of Christ. What you find in Revelation chapter 14, verse 18, the Bible says the grapes, Israel's grapes, are now fully ripe, and He harvests the grapes. And that's why Deuteronomy chapter 32 says it goes from sour grapes to the wrong wine to the pure blood of the grape. Grape juice in the Bible is a type of the blood of Christ. And all of that stuff comes together through the picture of Israel bringing forth the wrong fruit when she should have brought forth the right fruit. That in chapter 11, Israel my son, he says in verse 1, when Israel was a child, then I loved him and called him out of Egypt. And <coughs> there's a lot of confusion today about the Bible or the different ways to study things. And you'll find that with the nation of Israel, and I've already touched on this, you'll find that Israel is likened to an eagle, Israel is likened to an ass, she's likened to a woman, she's likened to a man, she's likened to a trig, fig tree, a fir tree, she's likened to virgin, she's likened to God's wife, and she's also called my son. You'll never find Israel being referred to as God's son or the son of God, but he'll say, Israel, my son. Or my son. But never put the designation God because that's reserved for the church. And there's many ways to study the church. I've already talk, talked on it. The bride, the virgin, son of God, oxen, children, palm trees. Interesting study is the study when Christ went into Jerusalem. The Bible says there was two animals there. An ass and an ass's colt. If you want to study sometime why Jesus chose the ass's colt instead of riding the ass. You've got the difference between the nation of Israel and the body of Christ. But a little something for you to play with. Everything in that Bible means something. Everything. So we find different ways. And one of the ways is Israel is not only God's wife, but he's God's son. Don't let that confuse you. There's different ways to study it. That's all. <clears throat> when you go over to Luke chapter 15, you'll find the story of the prodigal son. I know everybody likes to make that a Christian coming home after being out of fellowship with God. But if you read it, it really doesn't match. He says there that my son was once lost and now he's found. You can't apply that to a Christian. Well, where do you apply it? That prodigal son is Israel. It's Israel. Israel once lost, and now she's found. Christian can't get lost and refound. There's no lost and found for a Christian. But there is for Israel. So, things like that. And that's a great chapter. Chapter 12. Great study on the great principle of Jacob and Israel. You know, Jacob, the name Jacob, the name Israel, are really one and the same in the Bible. Jacob is the man that from him come the twelve tribes. His twelve boys make up the twelve tribes. <clears throat> and that's all covered in the book of Genesis. But it's the place where God changes uh, Jacob's name and then calls him Israel. And that sets up one of the greatest stories, and you don't have to turn to it, but in Genesis chapter 32, you'll find a a great study on Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord. Now I know that, you know, many, many times, and I've been asked this question in Bible study, you know, how did a man really wrestle with God physically? You know, we get the idea, you know, when the Bible says he wrestled with God, you know, of the you know, World Wrestling Federation, you know, with a ring and, and God, you know, body slamming him and Jacob, you know, cocoa butting him and, you know, and all the things and, and that's not what it was. In fact, the book of Hosea chapter twelve gives you the added information you need to understand that the wrestling mat wasn't physical. The wrestling match was between two men's wills. God wanted Jacob to do one thing, Jacob wanted to do something else. And they wrestled there and Hebrews chapter or Hosea chapter twelve supplies the added information that shows you that it was over the will of God in Jacob's life. And that's a great study because up to this point, Jacob, which means schemer, he schemed to get the birthright, he'd schemed to get the blessing, he'd schemed to get the wives, he'd schemed to get the cattle, he'd schemed for everything. And then there comes a day when God gets him alone and he wrestles with God, and at the end of that wrestling match, Jacob changes his life and God changes his name. It's a picture of Israel being restored. It's a picture of Israel who right now was a schemer scheming with nations to get what he wants God dealing with him in the tribulation period and that's where Israel's wrestling match will take place and then God changes his name and he becomes Israel and from that point on he's no longer Jacob now he's Israel and in an inspirational application it's a picture of your life and my life that we all struggle in our wills was giving ourselves over to God and when that point comes in your life that you work through it and you wrestle with God over his will versus your will at that point you decide to do what's right God changes your name Not changes your name as your name, but changes your name as the direction that you go in life. It's an incredible study. Incredible study. Then you get into chapter 13 and 14. Chapter 13 and 14 is God's call to backslidden Israel to return to God. You know, earlier I talked about three messages that God had for Israel that he gave them. God abhors the sin of his people. God's judgment is certain. And then I talked about the fact that in spite of that, God's faithfulness is everlasting. And uh, in chapter 13 and 14, you find God calling Israel back. And you'll find that uh, one of the greatest studies in the Bible is the covenant that God made with Abraham. Up to Abraham, all the promises to Israel or promises to the people that were in that line were conditional. The kingdom of heaven was a conditional concept. But once Abraham shows up, God changes the plan, and now it's no longer conditional, it's unconditional. It's unconditional. And God says, I'm going, to res- I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do, no matter what you do. But if you don't do what's right, I'm going to whip the fire out of you. But I'm going to do it. I'm going to be faithful to you, even though you're not faithful to me. And I'm never going to cast you off. But boy, I will kick the wadden out of you if you don't do what's right. And that's the condition. And he says in fourteen 1, O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. And God is faithful even when Israel wasn't. And of course, the principle to us is, God is faithful even when we're not. He says in verse 4, I will heal thy backslidings. I will love them freely for my anger is turned away from Him. And this all takes place Really right now in God's mind the time period we're living God is putting away his anger for Israel and God is calling them back. He called them back in 1918. He brought them back in 1948 and you're looking right now you're looking at God's mindset from 1918 to 2004 right now while we're living God is showing you what he's thinking while we're sitting here. Incredible. Romans chapter 9 Romans chapter 11 clearly tells us that God is not finished with the nation of Israel. And verse 9 says it all about God. He says this. He says, who is wise, if you think you're wise, and he shall understand these things? No, you won't. Prudent, and you shall know them? No, you won't. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the just shall walk in them, but the transgressors shall fall therein. God simply says, you know what? Walk in my way It's right. You don't, you're going to get clobbered. God never stops calling the lost. God never stops loving you and me. God never stops loving Israel. You know, I'm going to leave you with this. i want to leave you with the greatest concept about God, and it's the key to everything. It's the key to studying your Bible. It's the key to your relationship with God. It's the key to your, whatever you do for God, and it's certainly the key to your rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. But I want to tell you, we get whacked out because we don't really follow the Bible anymore, truth and all that stuff, you know. So we think the great, I've heard men say the greatest concept of God is His holiness, because God is holy. I've heard God's people say, well, the greatest concept of God is the fact that He's sinless. Somebody else I heard say one time, well, the greatest concept of God is the fact that He's all-powerful, omnipresent, omniscient. All those things, they hold up as the great, greatest concept about God. Now, I'm not saying those aren't great concepts, and they certainly are. And they're great Bible doctrines, and you ought to study them. But I'm here to tell you this morning that the greatest concept about God is not His holiness. It's not his sinlessness. It's not him all power, all knowing and everything. The greatest concept of God is his consistency. And if you don't get that, you ain't going to get anything out of the Bible. You know the key to learning that Bible? You know why other people think the great things he wrote is, is strange things? And you and I know that it are great things. Is because we follow a line in the Bible, of Bible study, knowing that God is consistent. And when he writes something down, he shows you something about it all the way through the Bible. And consistency demands that you accept the written Word of God as the final authority and once you do that you see the consistency of God God never changes that's the greatest thing and this is what we need and I don't understand why God's people can't see this why would you want a Bible that continually changes when you're already living a world that changes and you already have emotions inside you that constantly changes and everything about you absolutely changes why would you want a Bible that follows the same line? You know, the, and I don't understand. This is so simple to me. Maybe I'm just the most intelligent person on of planet Earth. I don't know. But why can't we get this? Why can't they get this? Why can't we see that what we need in a world that changes with our emotions, does your emotions change? Mine do. Mine's changed nine times since I started this message. Mine will change 128 times before I get through the end of the day. Mine change all the time. It's amazing how you can start out, you know, and everything's going to get you one phone call and everything's bad. Or it's amazing how you can just go through the house and you've got the half day and you just do one thing, one, one piece of dirty underwear in the wrong place and your day is gone. Our emotions change totally all the time. In the world it changes. You go to work tomorrow, you've got a great job, boss calls you in and says, Oh, by the way, uh, we're giving you two weeks notice. Up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. That's why we need something that doesn't change. That's why the only rhyme and reason to God and the Bible being the absolute final authority, me being right and everybody else is wrong is simply this. Why would you want a Bible that just goes like the world where it changes and somebody said, well, that doesn't mean, it meant this last translation, but we updated it now, it doesn't mean that anymore. Why would you want a Bible that changes just like the world does, like your emotions do? No, 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 no. The greatest, greatest concept of God is his consistency. God is consistent and in a world where it changes in a world where tomorrow I'll be afraid and today I'll be happy in a world where my emotions are up and down and emotions are run rampant in a world where everybody does everything and it's so confusing thank God that God has given me a book that hallmarks the greatest attribute that he has and very frankly without consistency his holiness means nothing without consistency he's just like everybody else The only thing that sets God and his word apart from any of the world is the fact that he is absolutely unchanging in a world and an environment and a society that's constantly changing. What do you have to hold on to if you don't have something that's absolute? And what does absolute mean if it doesn't mean consistent? What is absolute about something that changes? What What is absolute about something that is not consistent? And it comes down to this. God never stops calling the lost. He's consistent. God never stops loving you and me. He's consistent. God never stops being faithful to us. He's consistent. We're inconsistent. We'll stop loving Him. We'll screw up. We'll do all kinds of stupid things just like Israel will. But you know what? When God gave Israel that unconditional thing, it was a picture of what God gave us. He gave His wife a picture of what He absolutely, unequivocally gave the body of Christ in a different way, but the same concept consistency, an absolute unconditional guarantee that God will never waver in His viewpoint of how you look to Him and how He will deal with you. He will always love you, just like you'll always call the lost just like he'll always, he'll always love Israel, he'll reinstore Israel, and when God saved you, God said, you know what, Bob Alexander, I promise you I'll get you to home to heaven. If I got to get you home in an iron lung or a car wreck, or I got to get you home in a casket, I'll get you there. The process by how it goes is up to you, but I promise you, I'll, he's consistent. Boy, in this old world, I don't want to face a world that changes. I don't want to face a democratic, republican system that you can't tell who's telling you the truth. I don't want to go into work in places where people lie to you. I don't want to go into a situation where you don't know really what's up. I want something covering my back that is absolutely perfect, that is absolutely consistent, that I can take it to the bank every day of my life, every second of my life that gives me an absolute standard that says, you know what, in a changing world, I won't change. I won't change. I won't change. That's God. That's the Bible. And the world looks at that and says, that's a strange thing to me. I look at it and say, you know what? That is the greatest thing God ever gave me because that's what really makes the difference. Every head bowed, every eye closed.